I really enjoy doing these classes outdoors not just for the fact that we get to be outdoors and it's just really nice to be in nature but also just to marvel at the fact that we've been setting the place up for you know, just for the class for the last hour and it's been just nice and quiet and peaceful and like, okay today it's going to and then the moment the class is about to begin you've just got these kind of sounds that seem to kind of enter into our space but if we're looking at messages today especially this is a very kind of serious message is any time we start moving or we create an opportunity for light there's the world maya which is kind of the balancing reality to us merging into god it starts to also really try to make itself known to us and if nothing else this year is not going to be any different you know the world's going to find its own way uh, confusion's going to find its own way doubts is going to find its own way into the process that we're embarking upon in fact it's kind of the moment you start to embark they find a way to participate in that and they can either be a source of strength like right now there's a potential strength in being able to have the sounds have that distraction and yet be able to hold yourself firm or they can be a source of just distraction greater confusion and at some point you just say oh you know what it's just not worth it <laughs> it's too loud i'm just going to go in and turn on the television which is louder and drown out everything so we're going to get to see what what happens in the class today how many of us can just go beyond whatever other sounds the world is going to just naturally be throwing our way because speaking about sounds that's what we are working with today isn't it we talked about vibrations and thought and there yogananda segued into sharing the story about the sankirtan that they were doing at the ashram and how shri yukteswar ji really really emphasized the need to do kirtan chanting a lot together and whenever he celebrated the four main uh, transitions during the year which was the solstice and the equinox which for shri yukteswar who was an astrologer they held um, a very significant uh, reality for uh, for celebration for him sankirtan was a big part of that whole thing and of course you've seen us chant a lot that's one of the one things that we just do as often as we can and so yogananda goes into a little technical description which we asked you to kind of read on your own about the different divisions in the ragas in the indian musical system the ancient science of music which is um a reflection of the vibration of om and how to tune into that and here this was one line that we talked about and it's helpful to remind ourselves master says because nature is an objectification of om which page oh 158 okay this is the second paragraph because nature is an objectification of om the primal sound or vibrative vibration man can obtain control over all natural manifestations through the use of certain mantras or chants and then he's put a little footnote in here about a man in 1926 who in new york had assembled a group of firemen or he had gone to a fire brigade and he showed them 
how with a certain bow of the violin he would play certain notes they they had a fire kind of contained in a glass uh, case and based on those notes that he was playing the fire just began began to extinguish until it was completely put out and this man was trying to kind of convince the new york fire department to say hey you don't need water and you don't need to run around just if we can get just that right note you can just take care of any fire across the city i don't know if they went for it or not i'm sure they marveled at the possibilities but just to show how vibration and sound in fact one thing that i think swami ji talked about was back when the pyramids were built swami mm-hmm. kriyananda he talked about that you know we've got this image of the pyramids of the egyptian society being both advanced but also you know we can't think of them as more advanced than we are so we think of them as uh, you know they must have used thousands of slaves and if you've seen any movie they show all these slaves dragging these really heavy blocks you know i'm putting these uh, logs and kind of running them over the logs and if you've ever been to egypt or ever seen those stones uh, chances that they were able to do that successfully and then place it on top of each other so perfectly i mean they never used any cement but you can't even pass a sheet of paper through the okay. seams of the stones so swami said that of course this was treta yuga when these were being built and he said that they used sound and mantra to build the entire pyramids just certain incantations would lift the stone up and place them exactly where it needed to be it's such a sacred geometrical shape as well that um, it couldn't have been done by hand alone there are still some cultures somewhere <laughs> where they use the power of sound mm-hmm. and mantras to invoke a drain or change uh, something for the farming yeah. or just just to invoke in certain aspects of nature and seasons uh, in order to really change um the weather or you know like in a drastic way so there is certainly um a power in our way of communication not just with human beings i mean i think that's almost like a more gross way of communicating with words mm. but there are specific sounds that really have the power to change i think the molecules and the atoms and and really create drastic changes and that's what all our devas and devtas mm-hmm. really are there are these vibrations and so the entire vedas which is about mantras and inviting and invoking the presence of these devas agni indra like narayani was saying oh i need rain so i need to invoke the presence of indra but indra really is that one vibration of om that represents rain represents that kind of uh, sustenance in that form and if you can chant those mantras get that vibration just right which resonates with the indra vibration or the pavan vibration or the agni vibration naturally you're able to break and uh, break through kind of nature's hold as it is and create what you need in that moment it happens the same with also the animal kingdom do you remember that chapter of the tiger swami mm. where he was communicating also with the 
the animal kingdom and he was trying to to tune into what was the message what was the law that he was breaking and he had to align himself in that particular way according to his own karma to respect the animal kingdom as as god created in a way to sustain also earth so it's fascinating for us sometimes to tune into there are these different layers of kingdoms you know the in the ocean also no the, the marine life the, the marine plants, life the, the plants i mean earth has been <laughs> created this universe i mean has so many layers it would be nice for us sometimes to communicate that level in fact in our daily prayers we can choose to pray for specific aspects of mother nature sometimes can be for plants sometimes can be for trees sometimes can be for birds sometimes can be for specific specimens it's called species species <laughs> and to create a deeper relationship um, with the universe and its creation an interesting thing yogananda writes here is he talks about the indian music divides the octave into 22 shrutis or demi semitones we don't need to know these things of course these microtonal intervals permit fine shades of musical expression unattainable by the western chromatic scales of 12 semitones so the western style uh, kind of builds its music on 12 semitones and the indian on 22 we have more of everything don't we each one of the seven basic notes of the octave is associated in hindu mythology with the color and the natural cry of a bird or beast so that's interesting just as narayani was talking about you can attune to specific species and specific animals and their their particular cry and the sound that they make and to get into resonance with that and perhaps even communicate with them in ways you've never done before mm -hmm. and so you know the do re mi fa sol la ti to which is the western way we've got the sa re ga ma pa dha ni sa and so yogananda here says do is resonates with color green and the peacock re with red and the sky lark mi with golden and the goat fa with yellowish white it's an interesting color mm -hmm. and the heron sol with black and the nightingale la with yellow and the horse si with a combination of all colors and the elephant wow i never tuned into <laughs> this interesting so <laughs> now we've got a homework cut out for ourselves to make elephant calls and see if the elephant kingdom responds to us but it'll be fun to just experiment with these mm -hmm. sounds you know just if you've got a harmonium if you've got a guitar or if you've just got of course the human voice and just see if you can hold the, these notes you know the sa and just feel <laughs> what happened when, when i which bird comes <laughs> and i think also the qualities of these animals and what they represent and what is their role in nature how they interact in the world i think it can be a nice an entire study in yeah. itself and of course then there's the colors associated and 
there's just so much going on. Colors, then they relate to our chakras, they relate to our aura, they relate to the moods that we're in. And there's just a fascinating way for us to relate to the world that we, none of us truly appreciate, take the time to kind of discern these hidden laws. Of course, these are lifetimes and many people have spent lifetimes on them and we don't necessarily need to. We've got perhaps in a certain sense a higher goal but through in that process we can at least use some of these scientific laws as they are to our benefit. Then of course Yogananda goes on explains just a few little things that we can read. The musician has a creative scope for endless improvisation around the fixed traditional melody or raga. He concentrates on the sentiment or the definitive mood of the structural theme and then embroiders it to the limits of his own originality. So you've just got these very limited ragas, few ragas that are kind of established in the Hindu musical scheme. And in a sense, you can think of them as relating to just a few rays of divine thought that exist. Because on one level, it's not like you know, the way Sri Yukteswar puts it, God is extremely simple and everything else is complicated in the sense that it takes very few things to open ourselves to divine you know, presence. You've got love, you've got joy, you've got light. You've got, you know, and then love can be embroidered in thousands of ways. Kindness, compassion, understanding, softness, you know, a, a look. <laughs> I mean, love can be expressed in so many different ways. And so when you think about the music, the way music was built here, you've got the raga, which is actually fairly simple. And the musician will take a certain raga and then he begins to just build on it. And you, we know in the Hindu style, it's like, ah, and they'll take that one thing and then they'll do, put note after note after note after note using the same bass, but then going in infinite different ways around that bass. And we can think of our lives and just say, which kind of stream of musical vibration, of divine vibration am I going to kind of express today? and then figure out all the different ways that can be expressed. Oh, today is a day of love. The love raga will be expressed today. And what's that love gonna look like? And for a mother and a child, sometimes that love might even look firm, but as long as I'm holding that raga at the base, that's what really matters. And a musician attunes to that base. And so we need to figure out what our base is. Every day it can be different, but of course we have a general base and one base is that we want to express God. I mean, that's like mm -hmm. the baseline of everything that we do. So look at music from that perspective of you being a musician and there's a couple of symphonies playing and you can figure out which one you want to attune yourself to. It says here, again, very beautifully, the Hindu musician does not read set notes, which is again different from the way Western music is expressed. He clothes anew at each playing the bare skeleton of the raga, often confining himself to a single melodic sequence, stressing by repetition all its subtle microtonal and rhythmic variations. Again and again, repetition is an important part. 
Mm. You know, we can't just say, oh, today I feel like doing it in love and I'm just going to do this. And by the time the day is over, <laughs> we can't take it anymore. We have to keep, keep at it. Keep at it. Don't think that because there are a variety of expressions available to us, let me just try every possible expression. Repeat the same expression over and over again until it's no longer foreign to you, until it becomes so much a part of you. That's how musicians can lose themselves in music. How, therefore, they don't have to follow a set note. They don't have to read the music. They know the underlying vibration and then they can take the vibration wherever it wants them to go. And again, these are just ways for us to attune ourselves to the symphonies of life. So on and so forth. Yogananda goes a little longer into the different tals and how time is kept and how all of it also relates to how the body movement is a certain rhythm, the respiration is a certain rhythm and he starts to talk about how even the time of music is based, at least in the Hindu tradition, based on watching just the rhythms of the world, based on watching how I walk, based on watching how I breathe, based on certain sounds that are all around us and they started to pick time out of that and around that time, around that rhythm, they began to base their music. So Indian music in that sense didn't come as a need to creatively express myself. Ah, oh, you know, I have this beautiful sound, I must be heard. It came out of watching and observing life and then building beauty around that and the beauty especially expressed through the human voice, which Yogananda says is the most powerful instrument of all. It feels there is more intuitive kind of feeling in the mm -hmm. Hindu music, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, so it's yeah. like it's more like you just go a little bit what you feel in the moment and the more, the more you reaffirm that feeling, it's like you are magnetizing yourself to keep channeling that expression, that consciousness, always uh, at its highest, mm. at highest. And I think that's what really affirmations uh, do for each one of us. The more we affirm and the more we channel the consciousness, the thought pattern that we want to become and manifest, the more we'll be able to, to emanate, to vibrate, and to really manifest just with that um, very thought. Uh, I love this. I hope children <laughs> can be taught in this way, because if you are taught when you are such a child how to use your own energy, your own intuition, your own creativity, your own sound and voice, you know, I think uh, at a you know, as, as you grow up, you really are able to, to interact with the world in such a perfect harmony. And I, I hope we all can play <laughs> our part in India to really help our kids to, to grow up with this kind of consciousness and understanding and the beauty that you all have through the Indian music. The Sanskrit word for musician is Bhagavata, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. He who sings the praises of God. That's the beauty, isn't it? It's mm. not about music. <laughs> it's yeah. not about how beautiful my music is. In fact, it reminds me of a story of 
Tan Sen who we spoke of. It's a story that Yogananda would tell his disciples. Um, Tan Sen was such a famous musician and we read even Yogananda talking about him being able to change you know, night to dawn just by the music he sang. Uh, Akbar, who was his emperor, would always tell Tan Sen whenever he ended a raga or his little recitation, he would say, wow, you just, you sing so beautifully. I'm certain there's just nobody in the world who sings like you. And Tan Sen would always say, that's because you've not yet heard my guru. <laughs> he says, oh, you should hear my guru. So every time Tan Sen would say, you should hear my guru. And so once Akbar finally said, well, I want to hear your guru. Let's, you know, let's hear him. Uh, how could he be that much greater than you? I know it's just your humility. There's no reason to be humble. There is no way that another person could sing more beautifully than you. And so Tan Sen said, okay, I'll set up, you know, uh, uh, opportunity for you to come and listen to my guru. But of course, he does, can't know who you are because if he if you are there, then he won't sing. So they disguise themselves as, you know, humble <laughs> peasants. And if uh, they show up at one of his gurus in a tiny little village, in a tiny little ashram somewhere, far removed from the public eye. And when that session is over, Akbar, who's just blown away, says to Tan Sen, you know, I can't believe it, but you're right. He's absolutely way better than you. And I can't, I just, I don't even know how that's possible. And Tan Sen says, just truthfully, with all humility, he says, that's because I play to please you. And my guru plays to please God. And that's the only difference. Mm -hmm. That's what makes his music so much greater than mine. And this is what Master is saying over here. That's the, the very definition of the word musician is he who sings the praises of God. I think this could be a good moment just to pause just for a few seconds and, and see if there is perhaps here the lesson or, or the guidance or the insight of the day or perhaps of the weekend if if everything that we do can remind ourselves who are we doing it for and i think at least for me right now i'm going to take this as as the highlight of as of now today's class not to make sure that today i'll try to remind myself why i'm doing this which is to please god the Sankirtans or musical gatherings are an effective form of yoga or spiritual discipline, necessitating deep concentration, intense absorption in the seed, thought and sound. Because man himself is an expression of the creative word, sound has the most potent and immediate effect on him, offering a way to remembrance of his divine origin. That's an important line to remember, offering him a way of remembrance. Patanjali in the Yoga Sutras talks about God-realization being also a smriti. This memory that's suddenly awakened that says, oh, wait a minute, that's who I am. Because we're not trying to become anything else. It's not like we're like, oh, I need to become God. I have to unite myself. I have to overcome this ego. And it just feels like... It almost feels like I have to not be who I am and I have to become something else. 
I have to, you know, this this ego is somehow this evil root of individuality inside me that I have to, you know, kind of really beat into submission. But it's really just a remembrance. It's like, ah, you know. And uh, often used in even scriptures is these stories of, you know, this prince who is like at, at a child age, he gets lost and he's raised by some woodcutter. And later on, he comes back and suddenly he remembers that this palace seems familiar to me. You know, the sound seems familiar. The smell seem familiar. These clothes seem... This is what we're going through, really. We're going through a process of familiarizing ourselves. When Yogananda met his guru, the first thing he said when I looked at him, anciently familiar he was. Mm -hmm. And that's the familiarity that awakens in all of us when we find our guru. You know, their names were not Yogananda and Sri Yukteswar always. <laughs> At some other incarnation they were called, whoever they were called. But anciently familiar is that vibration that they emanate. Similarly, anciently familiar is the truth that we've always been God. And we continue to be so very much in this moment, just as that prince has always been the prince, even if he was raised by the woodcutters. I think that's the real role of a guru. It helps us, he helps us to remember. I don't know if you recall that episode of Lahiri Mahashaya, being in front of Babaji, mm. in the cave, at Babaji's cave. And inside that cave, there were two or three blankets, nicely placed, two or three bowls of some disciples who used that cave and Babaji asked Lahiri Mahashaya, look at that blanket, that ball, don't you remember? And Lahiri Mahashaya in front of Babaji, looking at Babaji's eyes, no sir, I don't remember. And then Babaji touches him at the heart center and suddenly Lahiri Mahashaya saw all those past incarnations of being at Babaji's feet, meditating in that very blanket. And that's really the role of our Guru. And hopefully, you know, whenever you feel ready for that process, what your Guru will bring you into your life, which is really the words that we were singing at the beginning, that chant, who we are, what are we coming from, and what do we need to remember. It is very powerful. It reminds me of the process that they follow when the next Dalai Lama needs to be chosen or the Rinpoches in the Buddhist, Tibetan Buddhist tradition is that they will bring, you know, some malas, mm. they'll bring certain bowls, and they'll watch the child, and they'll see where the child goes. Mm. And if the child goes and touches those things that belonged to the previous Dalai Lama or the previous Rinpoche, that's the first indication. So it's, it's about this remembrance that we have, all of us, when we first read the autobiography, you know, of course, this book may not have existed in our previous incarnation, <laughs> but the vibration is like something about it called us. And that's how, you know, it's almost like we touch this book and somewhere in the astral world, a light comes up in <laughs> Yogananda's study room and he's like, oh, somebody just touched the autobiography of a yogi. Let's check out who it is. Ah, oh, that's one of mine. 
and then he watches what we do with the book. He sees whether we will follow that familiarity or will other experiences be more familiar to us, which is money and, you know, fame and sex and whatever, you know, a bigger house, because those things are also familiarities that we've developed. It's just a question of what we are most remembering in that moment. So we're back to Sri Yukteswar's ashram. The Sun Kirtan issuing from Sri Yukteswar's second story sitting room on the day of the festival was inspiring to the cooks amidst the steaming pots. So Yogananda is there cooking for everybody in these big pots. My brother, disciples and I joyously sang the refrains, beating time with our hands. By sunset, we had served our hundreds of visitors with khichdi, vegetable curry and rice pudding. We laid cotton blankets over the courtyard. Soon the assemblage was squatting under the starry vaults, quietly attentive to the wisdom pouring from Sri Yukteswar's lips. These are beautiful images mm -hmm. to kind of immerse ourselves in. Because all that's happening through this book is because thoughts are universally rooted and are eternally vibrating in the cosmos. All of these thoughts, all of these vibrations are just as kind of present to us now if we tune into them as they were to those who were sitting at the feet of Sri Yukteswar. His public speeches emphasized the value of Kriya Yoga and a life of self-respect, calmness, determination, simple diet and regular exercise. Just very simple topics, isn't it? It wasn't like, let me tell you, <laughs> let me explain to you how the universe works and how many astral worlds there are. And somehow those are the things that we get excited about, but the masters don't seem very much interested in the number of astral worlds, are they? They're more interested in calmness, determination, simple, simple diet, diet, regular exercise, self-respect, and Kriya Yoga, of course. I like the fact that Sri Yukteswar, you know, wanted to, um, I don't know, make people feel like they can do it. <laughs> <laughs> and I think just giving these simple, you know, insights of you don't need to do much in order to have, you know, a balanced life, in order to, you know, live in harmony with yourself. Just these little bites, if you implement, this in your daily life and I feel we can see his loving side hmm. while while we see how how really wanted to not to put anyone off the path or make it sound too hard for really people join because we know how hard it is but I, I love the fact that he just brought the bar a little bit you know, like lower so everyone around him could feel like, you know what, I can do it too. If I just follow these three, four, five steps, I can be part of this energy. I can consider myself a spiritually inclined person. I can feel part of this way of life, which is, it's beautiful. And in the same way that Yogananda, Swami Kriyananda says that when he was in public with with other you know truth seekers or you know other i don't know just in larger gatherings. in larger gatherings 
he would just speak about this, about that, you know, give, offering the path in a much more broader way. But when he was with his disciples, he only spoke about attunement. And, and I can see similar ways of dealing with people's energy here with Sri Yuteswar. When he saw, you know, who he was with, he was able to present, you know, the teachings in a way that everyone felt they could do it. But then when Sri Yuteswar was with Yogananda and a few other closest disciples, he was hard. I mean, he's just like very, very disciplinary. And so I love the fact that even the toughest <laughs> of the gurus really are concerned and, and welcome and embrace everyone and make them feel comfortable on the spiritual path. A group of very young disciples then chanted a few sacred hymns. The meeting concluded with Sankirtan. Again, more music. From 10 o'clock until midnight, the ashram residents washed pots and pans and cleared the courtyard. Eh, for, to those who are here right now, this seems very familiar. This is, this is our daily life. Everything's over. The kirtan is over. Everybody's had their little blissful moment. Okay. Let's put now, back the chairs. Now let's put the chairs back. Let's the clear dishes. the place up. I mean, just... That's really the spiritual journey, isn't it? It's the Sankirtan only lifts our consciousness up so that then when we do what's needed, we're still with God in what we do. And it's not that we'll be Sankirtaning 24-7 for the rest of our lives. No, the Sankirtan only lifts consciousness because then that consciousness has to be applied in the rest of our lives at home, at work, with our friends, with our family, with our enemies, mm -hmm. with whoever it is. I like also the fact that Sri Yuteshwar didn't call the maid to do the dishes <laughs> or to call, you know, the body, I mean, the guy who is... <laughs> the Mali. <laughs> the Mali to do all that. It just, the disciples were doing it. And after they were serving, you know, the whole day, then also at night, they, they had to do the cleanup, and this is really what the spiritual path is all about. The devotee does absolutely everything because there is no difference for a true disciple when he's cleaning, when he's chanting, when he's meditating, when he's serving the pool, when he's, you know, doing the floor. And, and I think this is a wonderful state of consciousness that each one of us are working towards and start seeing everything we do as exactly the same and with the same potential to bring us to freedom. And I love that Yogananda was singing and meditating, but then he was just cleaning all those pots and being messy until late hours in the night. My guru called me to his side. I am pleased over your cheerful labors today and during the past week of preparations. I want you with me. You may sleep in my bed tonight. What a privilege. This was a privilege I had never thought would fall to my lot. We sat a while in a state of intense divine tranquility. 
Hardly 10 minutes after we had gotten into bed, Master rose and began to dress. What is the matter, sir? I felt a tinge of unreality in the unexpected joy. It's like, ah, I'm about to be with my guru. And you know, imagine in the astral world when, when you're breaking the bonds of the body at night, the vibrations that must be exchanged in that process. And now Sri Yukteswar is up again. It's like, what did I do? <laughs> and Sri Yukteswar says, I think that a few students who missed their proper train connections will be here soon. Let us have some food ready. Guruji, no one would come at one o'clock in the morning. Stay in bed. You have been working very hard, but I am going to cook. At Sri Yukteswar's resolute tone, I jumped up and followed him to the small, daily used kitchen adjacent to the second floor inner balcony. Rice and dal were soon boiling. My guru smiled affectionately. If you remember before this story began, Yogananda talks about, I'm going to now tell you of an incident where I received a permanent blessing. And this is what that permanent blessing is. My guru smiled affectionately. Tonight, you have conquered fatigue and the fear of hard work. You shall never be bothered by them in the future. Imagine that. It doesn't take much, does it? Just a little bit of joy put into everything that we do. A little bit of banishing any sense of, oh, I think I've done enough, and oh my goodness, look at the time. And, you know, I came here for Sankirtan. I didn't come here to scrub pots and pans. And then that's it, you know, whatever that karma was, because it's a big karma to not want to put out energy. The human condition has become such that we're constantly trying to find ways to put out as little energy as possible, get by with as just the basic, I, I did this and you know, that's enough. Not so bothered about whether I did it well, whether I could have done it better. And I think it's about the attitude, really. Everything boils down to that. I mean, the key words here of Sri Yudesh were really complimenting Yogananda. It's not just about the hours he put, you know, in his seva, in his service. He said, he has your cheerful labors. I mean, the attitude, the joy in which you are infusing your seva, that project, that activity, that action with that attitude creates a permanent vibrationary, vibrationary effect in the ether and it remains forever there. So I think that's another, for me, key word today, because some of us, when we are asked to perform an activity, we can be cheerful for perhaps the first half an hour performing that activity, but very soon we start, you know, slowing down, you know, with our attitude, start thinking about something else. Well, maybe somebody at school cannot help me also to do this. I'm always finding myself doing it my own. And why those people are there talking rather than coming here and helping me with the chairs? You know, it's like after half an hour of entering into our seva, so joyfully, so in, you know, perfect attunement, very soon we lose it. 
And what Sri Yukteswar is complimenting and acknowledging and blessing Yogananda for is because he kept that attitude for a week. No matter what went on during that week, he never lost that cheerful attitude. And what's the blessing that brings to us? To be closer to the Guru. And in this moment, it came in the form of sleeping physically close with Sri Yuteshwar. So for us, once we perfect that way of serving, we are gradually, naturally, organically becoming closer to that consciousness of the Guru. So a good, good one to keep in mind. As he uttered these words of lifelong blessing, footsteps sounded in the courtyard. I ran downstairs and admitted a group of students. And of course, and the students come and the Guru had been expecting them and food is being offered. And then finally, Yogananda says, when everything was put to rest, I followed him to his bedroom a half hour later realizing fully that I was about to sleep beside a god-like guru. We have, should we start the next chapter? We have 10 more minutes. Mm, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> what do you guys think? Should we start the next chapter? All right. Okay. Let's just, it's the new year, so let's get into a new chapter, even if it's just a couple of lines. This is chapter 16, Outwitting the Stars. Mukunda, why don't you get an astrological armlet? Should I, Master? I don't believe in astrology. It is never a question of belief. The only scientific attitude one can take on any subject is whether it is true. The law of gravitation worked as efficiently before Newton as after him. The cosmos would be fairly chaotic if its laws could not operate without the sanction of human belief. So that's an important aspect, of course, for all of us. We all have our belief systems. We all, I believe in reincarnation. I don't believe in past lives. I don't believe or do believe in astrology, whatever it is. And uh, it's important for us at often times and, you know, keep testing our beliefs for sure, but keep asking really more importantly, what is true? And that's an important kind of question to hold, even on the spiritual path. In fact, especially on the spiritual path, what is true? Because uh, it's easy to get very constrained in your beliefs. It's easy to get bogged down by your beliefs. And God doesn't work with, he's not creating, he's not working that, oh, I hope these people believe in me. He doesn't need us to believe in, uh, in him to exist or to run the entire universe. But we need to keep kind of upping our, our own belief understandings and begin to see what more can I experience? What's next for me to open myself to more and more? On the spiritual journey especially, we want to keep breaking any of the kind of ossifications we've created 
especially uh, as far as mental attitudes are concerned, as Narayani was talking about in terms of seva, for example, or whatever it is, don't kind of just kind of create a ceiling or a bar that's comfortable to you. Oh, I don't believe in astrology, so therefore, you know, it just doesn't matter to me what's going on wherever. Well, it really doesn't matter anyway, but what's going to happen is going to happen. The idea is, can I attune myself to larger realities? And if I'm able to attune myself to larger realities, how may I do that? These are the questions that would perhaps help guide the spiritual journey more efficiently uh, in our lives. And also, does it work? A question that we really need to ask ourselves when someone comes to us and tells us, well, I don't believe in that meditation <laughs> nonsense, you know. I mean, it's not about if you believe it or not, first of all. Have you experienced it? And if you have given it a chance, I mean, does it really work? Give yourself a month, try it, and see if 10 minutes of meditation every day starts changing your mood, your consciousness, your attitude, your energy, your magnetism, your level of restlessness. I mean, it's not about <laughs> whether you believe it or not. I mean, does it work? Are you really seeing uh, a difference in your life? And nowadays, the timings, the times are such that it's all about experimenting. If really makes a difference in my life. If I indulge in chocolate and sugar <laughs> and coffee and just chai, as some of us have been doing lately, <laughs> how that affects my own energy. If I eat more healthy food, more raw, more vegetables, how do I feel? So start experimenting. In fact, one of the things that Shurja and I like to share with our people when we teach a meditation class, after we have given everything, the technique, we have explained absolutely everything so perfectly after us meditating for 10, 15 years, we always end our class telling them, but don't believe absolutely anything that we have explained you today. Try it, experiment it, and give yourself a month. Then come to us and tell us if, if this is true and if this really works in your life. So that could be a good experiment. Is it true and does, does it, it work? work? And you can use those questions for anything. And we also have to, you know, always realize, okay, it may not be true or it may not be working right now for me, but can it, can I, am I open to staying with it? That's the hard part, isn't it? Most people who say, oh, this oh, meditation doesn't work and you ask them, have you ever meditated? I tried it once for, you know, 30 seconds and it just doesn't work. So try it, stay with something a little while and then kind of before you discard um, the wisdom that has been kind of flowing for millennia and this can be for anything you know any kind of system that exists because almost everything is based in truth corruptions always come in over the years and you have to kind of sometimes separate truth from the corruptions but that naturally separates in your own experience once you give yourself truly to any aspect especially on the spiritual journey but also just in daily life 
will cheating people really work <laughs> and will I be able to make money? It'll be true for a little while, but then you'll see other things not working. Yes, you might have money, but then you lose people, you lose friends, you lose face, you lose respect. And so you just have to start to decide what is true and what does work. Maybe that is a good place to end. Mm -hmm. At least we started the new chapter. Mm -hmm. and it's just as the year just started, the new chapter just started. Um, I don't know if for any of you, you were able to pick out one or two things, or even if nothing else, just one thing. That um, could be some form of, okay, I want to make this year about this a little bit more. Uh, doesn't have to be the only thing that you do in the entire year. But it could be some sort of like the raga. It could be a base of some kind around which now you experiment, experience what's true, what works, and build around that. But uh, at least for Narayani and me, we've picked out our thing, which mm -hmm. I'm not going to share mm -hmm. yet until I, <laughs> I'm more settled in it. But maybe at the end of the year, if we still remember this chapter, we can all come back and say, hey, what did you pick? <laughs> what did you get from that chapter? Mm 